When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right at the heart of this episode is a provocative question. Are identity politics ruining democracy? We hear from one of the leading public intellectuals of our time about the demand for dignity and the negative power of resentment. Francis Fukuyama. When you don't get the respect you think you deserve, it makes you very angry, either on your behalf or on the behalf of people who are like you. And I think if you look at our politics, it's built around anger. You know, you don't get elected to office unless you are capitalizing on some form of anger. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, today we're talking about what the hell is going on out there. Politics in the U.S. has been getting stranger and and less conventional for many years. Even in the post-Trump era, there are a lot of ominous signs. And overseas as well, moderation and democracy are in retreat in many places from Eastern Europe with populist leaders, Russia, China, and now in Iran, the man known as the hanging judge, the hardliner's hardliner, Ibrahim Raisi, taking over as president. Iran might be one of those countries where democracy is more of a fig leaf than a reality. But in many other areas where democracies really were getting established and stronger, now it seems they're sliding the other way. Our guest today has some answers and also some constructive ideas about how to bounce back. Jim, you spoke with Francis Fukuyama in 2018. We are re-releasing that interview because what he said then is still highly relevant today. We'll discuss your interview with him later in this episode. Francis Fukuyama is a political scientist who teaches at Stanford University and has served in the U.S. State Department. He's the author of quite a few books on democracy and society, and his most recent book is Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. We're speaking at the offices of his publisher in Lower Manhattan. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Well, thank you very much. So I want to start with the question right at the top. Mm -hmm. What is identity? I think that every one of us has a feeling that we have an inner self and that oftentimes that inner self is not respected by other people. And uh, because we're human beings, we really demand that other people recognize that inherent dignity that we have. And that's the driver of a lot of politics. But it's also the basis of nationalism. I think actually a lot of what passes for religion is actually a kind of 
cry for identity, that we want to be respected as Muslims, let's say, that are being you know, harmed all over the world, and we need to stand up for ourselves. Because normally when you say you know, respect, dignity, those sound like good things. How do they get twisted into something that's problematic? Well, they are good things. I think that in the United States, for example, what we call identity politics started from all the big social movements, these important social movements for civil rights, feminism, the LGBT movement. All of these were marginalized groups that were not taken seriously by the rest of society or disrespected, despised. I think that they get problematic, however, when you start emphasizing the way in which your identity makes you different from other people rather than emphasizing what you hold in common with fellow citizens. In your career, you've covered this long sweep of a change in, in, in our politics since the mid-20th century, and it's, it's not just a matter of style. You know, people often talk about, like, well, that's just Trump being Trump. But you're really saying it's a deep change in how we think about politics and how we view ourselves as citizens. Mm-hmm. You say, rather than build solidarity around large collectives such as the working class— Politicians began to focus on ever smaller groups that found themselves marginalized in specific and unique ways. No, that's right. I think that's been the tendency of identity politics to focus on ever smaller groups. And so, you know, you had gays and then you had gays and lesbians and then you had gays and lesbians and trans people. And and now you've got to fit in the non-binary. And every week, it seems there is another... Sexual uh, identity, right. Yeah, narrower definition, but you have to be very, very careful to get it right when you're talking to people. No, that's right. And I think, you know, you can understand why that happens, but you can also understand why people get a little frustrated with that, because these are categories that most people had never even heard of before, and now they're told that this is, you know, the the most important justice, social justice issue that they have to deal with, and they're being insensitive for not being aware of it. And I think that 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 kind of rhetoric has really given rise to anti-political correctness. That's all of what Donald Trump is. He loves violating norms of political correctness, and I think a lot of his supporters cheer him on when he does that. So one of the points you make is that this focus on identity that started on the left has now migrated over to the right in almost a more, even more virulent form. Oh, in a terrible form. No, I mean, I would say 50 years ago, the average white person in the United States didn't think to himself or herself, I'm a white person, I'm part of this group here. Whereas now that has seeped into the rhetoric of the white nationalists and the alt-right that Whites are a victimized category, that they've been marginalized by all of these other minorities that have been pushing for advantages over them, and they have their rights as well. That's something we haven't heard, I think, previously. You know, the Republican Party is becoming the party of white people, and the Democratic Party is becoming the party of some progressive whites, but then all of the other minorities. And I think that's not a good position for the country to be in when the primary political divide corresponds to an ethnic and racial divide as well. So it's not good for the future of democracy. I think it's better, you know, if both parties actually stick to broad social policy issues that they can argue about rather than lining themselves up according to biological characteristics. Something like 80% of Southern whites in the 1930s voted for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal coalition because, you know, he was actually doing something for them. You lose something because I think one of the big truths about social development in the United States in the last generation 
is that the fates of white people in the United States have gone in completely different directions. You know, the college-educated have been doing great, and those without a high school education have just been falling off a cliff. And to call them all one homogeneous, privileged category, I think, is wrong. Back in 1992, you published a an article, later a book, called The End of History. And people are still talking about it. It mm-hmm. had a huge impact. And the basic idea was that with the coming collapse of the Soviet Union, the long-standing tension between the liberal West and the communist countries was coming to an end, that driver of conflict, and that most of the world was going to coalesce around basically some form of liberal democracy and open markets. And and in fact, it was pretty prescient because that happened Mm -hmm. for a while. Well, more than a while. I think between 1970 and the mid-2000s, the world went from having about 35 democracies to having over 115 Uh, So it was the dominant form of government around the world. But ever since the mid-2000s, I think we've been going backwards. The number of democracies has fallen. Authoritarian countries like Russia and China are much more self-confident. So you say we're having a global recession in democracy. That's right. So there's a lot of discontents. I think that globalization pushed this liberal world order very far, very fast, in terms of things like outsourcing, job loss, but also cultural change, because virtually every Western democracy now has a very substantial number of people that were born outside its territory. And that's, for many countries, that's something very new. And it's easy, perhaps, for a certain style of politics to prey on that. That's right. So we elected one president who's managed to very cleverly intuit the fears and resentments of a part of the United States population that really had not been terribly well represented by either political party. But this is going on in Hungary with Viktor Orban, you know, with the Law and Justice Party in Poland. It's not not just a phenomenon limited to the United States. Right. It's something that's rooted really deep in human consciousness. When you don't get the respect you think you deserve, it makes you very angry, either on your behalf or on the behalf of people who are like you. And I think if you look at our politics, it's built around anger. You know, you don't get elected to office unless you are capitalizing on some form of anger. And frankly, a lot of our politics is sort of dignity politics. Uh, It's one group saying, look, you're not taking us seriously. You disregard our, our rights and we demand a different kind of world. We're still living with the consequences in many respects uh, of our financial crisis in 2008, where you know their savings were undercut. You know, a lot of them were kicked out of their homes. Uh, they're only gradually recovering, if at all, from that. So there's a lot of combustible material out there. It's not as if the anger just comes from nowhere. But every politician uses this. So Vladimir Putin has talked about the way that Russia was humiliated during the 2000s when it was weak. Uh, and that he's restored uh, it to a kind of dignity as a great power. Xi Jinping keeps talking about the hundred years of humiliation that China suffered at the hands of Western imperialism. So this kind of resentment, you know, really runs everywhere. And sometimes they aren't necessarily wrong. I mean, people do have good reasons to be concerned about the bankers getting bailed out after the financial crisis, but not the homeowners. Absolutely. No, I think... There's a core of justice that underlies almost all of these claims. The question is where you take it from there and whether the claim for justice becomes a claim for something more than justice. Some of the the push for identity politics 
comes from people legitimately recognizing that there's areas where even the the best liberal democracies sometimes have blind spots or they're not doing a good enough job, and including the United States. What are some of those? Well, liberal democracy recognizes you as a generic human being, and that's why you have rights as a, as a citizen. But for many people, that's not enough because they feel that uh, they're also specific ways in which their dignity is not being recognized, being member of a group, and particularly a group that's been marginalized historically. So African Americans, women, gays and lesbians, uh, all of these groups in the past did not receive either legal or social recognition of their equal status, and those have led to demands you know, for recognition of their particular experiences and identities. You talk about why dignity is such an important part of this. It runs counter to the old economic model that people basically enhance their self-interest in, in an economic way. But in fact, there, there's a, a very personal spiritual side to this. And you talk in the fight for gay marriage. That's right. You know, getting rights as partners, having all the same rights as married people, that wasn't good enough and for very understandable reasons. It's absolutely a dignity issue. So if you just had a civil union that preserved all your legal rights of inheritance and survivorship and so forth, you know, that satisfies the economic dimension, but it says but we still think that your union is not of equal worth to a man and a woman being married. And that's really what I think drove the gay marriage movement. It's a dignity issue and fundamentally not an economic rights issue. And it may also be why that that movement was successful so quickly, because I think most people can appreciate that why that's important. I think that's uh, that's right. It's, it's remarkable how quickly this was accepted as a you know, as an intrinsic element of, of equal dignity. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs, and we're releasing the 2018 interview I did with Francis Fukuyama. Richard and I will come back to discuss it later in the show. Next in our interview, we spoke about Donald Trump and when he became the Republican nominee for president five years ago. I thought the creepiest moment for me was when he gave his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention in the summer of 2016. Uh, he had this line where he said, I alone understand your problems and I alone can fix them. Now, you really have to go back to someone like Mussolini to hear that kind of rhetoric. You know, it's, it's classic populist demagogy that 
I have this direct uh, way of intuiting what you believe, and I'm the only one that understands you. And I, I mean, first of all, it was totally implausible that this real estate developer actually really understood anything about problems and how to fix them. But, but the rhetoric was was one of of a perfect demagogue, and it seemed to me at that point, you know, I said to myself, we're really in trouble if this guy actually becomes president. You know, people often say, well, didn't people realize he's a rich developer? But stylistically, he owed a lot more to the World Wrestling Federation That's right. than he does to the world of high finance or, or politics. Well, his problem actually is that he never ran anything other than a large family business. He never had to report to a board of directors or shareholders uh, to any kind of real bureaucratic structure. It seems like part of Trump's appeal is is something that comes up a lot in these movements, which is a kind of nostalgia, maybe a nostalgia for a past that never really was. Well, uh, and that's where the racial part of it comes in, because, you know, quite frankly, I think he's a racist. You know, that record, uh, I think, has suffused a lot of the things that he's done as president and explains, you know, why he's been so divisive. You say that the emphasis on identity politics is also a threat to free speech. Why? Well, this is something that you see on college campuses increasingly where uh, you don't want to just debate somebody with different opinions or that comes from a different group that you don't approve of. You actually want to shut them down. Uh, And then, you know, the conservatives take advantage of this. So you get these provocateurs like Richard Spencer that, you know, or Ann Coulter that actually want to be shut down so that they can make a big deal out of it. And that, you so know, they can claim that 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 treasured victim status. That's right. They want to be victims as well. So our show's about solutions. And but these are deep cultural trends that really go back. People are being inculcated in this this identity worldview from childhood. How do we go about starting to change it? Well, the nice thing about identity is, in fact, it's not necessarily based on biology. It's something that can be shaped by leaders, by politicians, by the way we teach our children, by parents. Uh, And I think that rather than focusing on ever narrower uh, social identities, we need to have more integrative ones. And that's why I think having a strong American national identity is something that's important. And it's not something that's been emphasized terribly much. In fact, it's been somewhat criticized. It's been, it's been criticized as being chauvinistic, you know, and, and based on patriarchy and racism and so forth. But there is also a progressive story that you can tell about the United States, that it was born in a certain commitment to freedom and equality, that we've never fully lived up to it, but that over the years we've done probably better than most other societies in actually making that a reality for fellow citizens. And I think that's that kind of liberal, open identity, civic, creedal identity that we need to recultivate. And what you're describing, this idea that America is a progress towards towards freedom and dignity for everybody, that's the American creed? I think it's got to be something like that. You know, I mean, let me refer to my own experience. My grandfather was born in Japan, came as an immigrant to the United States. I never learned Japanese. I grew up in New York where there wasn't an Asian American community, but I never spent any time thinking of myself as an Asian American or a Japanese American. 
You know, I said, I'm just an American. And the nice thing about America, you know, you couldn't say that in Japan if you're not racially Japanese. You couldn't say I'm Japanese. Even after several generations. Yeah, right. If you're a white person, you just can't yeah. do that. But in the United States, you can. In the United States, you know, I, I didn't feel that being racially different was a disadvantage uh, at all. And I think that's a great thing. That's a great thing about the United States. And that's what it means to have your identity rooted in a set of beliefs rather than an ethnicity. That used to be kind of the, your basic middle school civics. Mm -hmm. How do we get back to that? Well, for one thing, you can actually start teaching civics again, which I think has gone into a lot of uh, uh, disuse uh, in, in, in schools. And maybe now that there actually is this threat you know, to the Constitution and to basic American institutions, people realize that if you don't teach people about what, you know, checks and balances mean or what their constitutional rights are, then they're not going to be so vigilant in, uh, in defending them. And you also s suggest that maybe we should consider bringing back some kind of national service. Uh, you know, this may be a pipe dream, but it does seem to me that uh, a national service would remind people that they're not just rights-bearing citizens that are always getting stuff from the government, but they're also actively engaged people that owe their country something in terms of their own lives. Uh, the other thing that's great, you know, that the military does is it actually forces people of different geographies and social classes to mix with one another. And unfortunately, very few of our institutions do that anymore. Immigration is one of those really tough issues mm -hmm. that's driving a lot of the intensity on these issues on, on both sides. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe some of the most controversial part of your book with some readers might be the fact that you think critics of immigration are over the top in some of their criticisms but may have a point in other areas. Well, I think that you have to understand that there's a lot of different motives and it's simply not the case that everybody that's skeptical of our current immigration system is a racist or a xenophobe. Uh, I think a significant number of people don't like the fact that we don't control our borders and that there's a lot of illegal immigration. And I think that if you want to really uh, prick this, uh, this boil of, of you know, right-wing populism, you've got to split those people off from the people that are the genuine racists. But democratic societies do have to be able to control who's a member of their society. It strikes me that your ultimate point about our style of liberal democracy is, is a pretty radical one today, and that is that uh, liberal democracies are better, and we shouldn't be afraid to say so. Uh, that's absolutely correct. I think there's been... Uh you know, a kind of overreaction to this populist upsurge to say, oh, yeah, you know, globalization and all of these things were terrible and we need to somehow roll them back. I think there needs to be a, you know, a basic defense of a tolerant, open society, an open, tolerant, diverse society. But we also have to remember that that uh, shouldn't get carried to extremes. We need common citizenship. We need common values. You're not saying that the project of liberal democracy is finished, and there's still progress to be made, and you're an advocate for certain kinds of, of federal policies that, that are inclusive. And you look back to the controversial Obamacare bill as, as one of those. I think that that's a perfect example of a good social policy. It's not 
racially or ethnically targeted. It includes a lot of beneficiaries of all genders, races, ethnicities, and it does something really substantive to help their lives. And I think if we could focus, you know, if the left can refocus on making something like the Affordable Care Act actually work and really cover everybody, that would be a great accomplishment. And everything has to be held in a, in a, in a balance. Thank you, Francis Fukuyama. Thank you very much. And before our conversation, Jim, it's our recommendation. This comes from the same magazine, two recommendations, one from each of us. Yours first. The cover story in the current issue of The Atlantic, 20 Years Gone by Jennifer Senior, is an absolutely heartbreaking and beautifully written account of one family's struggle with grief over losing their young son in the attacks of 2011. The son was an acquaintance of uh, Jennifer Seniors, and she really spends a lot of time with the family. And in the process, we learn a lot about how the damage of 9-11 really played out in families. By focusing on one family, I think we get a broader sense of the grief of many. And the second article that we're recommending is by David Brooks, and it's about the creative class that were supposed to foster progressive values and economic growth, but instead, argues Brooks, we got resentment, alienation, and endless political dysfunction. A fascinating revisit of a book that he wrote nearly 20 years ago called Bobos in Paradise uh, that was about the creative class, highly educated people in America and the impact they've had on society. And I just want to say, at a time when so many people worry that journalism is becoming more partisan, more targeted at attacking enemies rather than trying to get towards truth, we really need to treasure institutions like The Atlantic that that really make an attempt to produce a diversity of voices and look at issues in a, in a nuanced way. So three cheers for The Atlantic. And now that moves nicely into our conversation. This was a great interview, Jim, that you did with Francis Fukuyama, who talked a lot about um, the responses to resentment that, that many people feel, both on the left and on the right, for various reasons. And there may be good reasons for that resentment, but on its own, resentment is hardly a productive emotion unless there are constructive responses to it and responses that move us ahead as a society. Then we just merely end up with more griping and dysfunction and polarization, which is a lot of what we have at the moment. It's very effective in politics. It always has been, but it's, this tendency has definitely gotten worse. When I was listening to the interview again, I was struck by how much has changed since 2018. We had the whole uh, George Floyd period of reassessing so many issues about race in our society and in, in many ways, many positive process of people going back and rethinking a lot of their, their ideas, but also a, a, a period that reinforced a tendency towards more identity politics. And identity politics, it's defined very narrowly by race and gender and, and, and other issues. We're seeing a lot of that kind of ethos filter down into schools, even grade schools. We're building a cultural worldview that 
is almost based on assuming that whatever the United States does, it, it, it's automatically the worst thing rather than something that's flawed and, and should be better. What we need to do is to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, hold two ideas uh, in our heads. One is that there are many values that this country has stood for that still are highly relevant today, and we should be very proud of our country in some respects, but we should also be aware of the blemishes in our history. You know, the values of liberal society are better than the values of closed societies, whether fascist, communist, or Islamist. And we should be proud of that. And I think we need some of that old-fashioned sense of, of willingness to say, yes, these ideas are better. I'm going to fight for these ideas. To my friends on the left, I would say, judge us by our enemies. Our enemies include the dictatorship in Cuba, what's going on in China with the destruction of human rights in Hong Kong, uh, populism in Eastern Europe. These are ideas that run counter to ours. And until somebody else comes up with a much better system than, than we have already, ours is among the least bad. <laughs> yes. Still need to work on it. Still needs a little work. <laughs> but <laughs> but we're, we start from a wonderful foundation. And, and, and I think that's something that, that is too easily forgotten today. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is made by Davies Content. We make podcasts and consult on podcasts for companies and nonprofits. We're at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 